The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. For decades now, we've been inundated with inaccurate, misleading, and deceptive media coverage of nuclear power, uranium exploration, and mining. But Jay, is nuclear power really as dangerous as they say? Well, it's just the opposite. And our guest today is going to tell us just how safe it is. It's actually the safest form of energy on the planet. It's unfortunately that so many people opposed it so many years ago and a few incidents uh, turn people against it, but it really is the safest form of energy and will undoubtedly run the world some centuries. Hence, uh, it's declining in the United States, but growing elsewhere in the world. And that's what we'll be talking about with our guests. So go ahead and introduce him. Yeah, sure. Our guest today is Houston, Texas-based geologist, Michael D. Campbell. Michael is Senior Principal and Chief Geologist, Chief Hydrogeologist of I2M Consulting, LLC. This is a professional practice offering experienced geologists, hydrogeologists, and other geoscientists, and project managers with many years experience in assessments and other activities. And we'll link to the organization I2M Consulting under the podcast when it goes up online on Monday. Michael serves in a variety of technical and management functions, ranging from operational management to field work and supervising drilling and sampling programs to performing groundwater modeling and associated maps and database construction. He is the author and co-author of many publications. For example, one very relevant to today's interview, Jay, a 2018 paper titled Confronting Media and Other Bias Against Uranium Exploration and Mining nuclear power, and associated environmental issues. That was published in the Journal of Geology and Geoscience, and we'll link to this paper in the program description again when it goes to podcast on Monday. So welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, good. Michael, in your writings, uh, you made note of a couple nuclear power plants, I believe, being built in uh, Georgia and South Carolina. Could you bring me up to date on those? I've heard they're uh, way behind time and way over budget. And uh, what I've read made me think that they may never be completed. Could you give us an update on them? Yeah, sure. Uh, that, that's an interesting story, actually. It started out poorly for Westinghouse. Westinghouse, in fact, a few years ago, went bankrupt. And, and their, their main manager is probably heading for prison for misdeeds. But um, the people in and around Georgia and South Carolina, where, where the Vogel plant is, it has already two uh, nuclear reactors. They got their stuff together. And even with the over, over budget, uh, but with the help of some uh, help from the government and what have you, 
they're in the process of finishing that now, and it should be ready sometime next year. Uh, and uh, that site will contain four reactors and will produce the highest output of any in this country. Well, that's well Michael, you, you just made my day because I had heard nothing but bad things. And I yeah. think to get a new, some new plants up and running is going to help move the whole program throughout the country. But have we lost uh, preeminence in manpower, knowledgeable about nuclear engineering with all the years that we've gone without building a plant? Well, uh, oddly enough, of course, we, we've lost um, hands-on experience because we haven't built anything until Vogel started and continued. But strangely enough, over the past 10 years, all of the major universities have nuclear engineering, active nuclear engineering schools. They're loading up. And the anticipation is, is getting to be rather large that there's going to be an expansion in construction here pretty soon. University of Michigan, I should say, probably tops out. MIT is, is uh, very close to uh, the top. Uh, even Ohio State has a, a good uh, nuclear engineering uh, uh, program going on. Penn State has probably number four. So to answer your question, Jay, I, I think we're, we're getting on the wagon now. When you compare that against China, China has thousands and thousands of, of, of students uh, working on nuclear power plant engineering and related. So, uh, but we're not doing bad. Well, this is more good news for me personally, because I've got such an interest in nuclear power. And, mm -hmm. and certainly for our audience, I would imagine the little bits and pieces our audience read over the years has not been positive. So you've uplifted everybody in this area. Now, people are reading about small modular reactors, and uh, I don't think they really have a, a good idea of what they are. In the article that we wrote about your work that appears now in AmericaOutloud.com, we showed a modular reactor uh, being towed on a truck. I don't know how accurate that is, but uh, try to explain the concept of the new small modular reactors and where they've been used in the world and where they're likely to be used in the United States. Okay, uh, sure, Jay. I, I'm rather excited about the, the SMRs and even the micro uh, reactors because uh, there's maybe 50, 75 companies right now that are working very hard to put together a small modular reactors uh, that'll turn out to produce something like uh, 100 to 200, maybe 300 megawatts. And then they can be modulized if you want 1,500, you get four units. If you only want two units, you can break it up. You don't have to have one great huge uh, plant uh, that takes years to put together. But I guess the, the most important thing, it's already started. Uh, Bill Gates and, and, and the boys in Wyoming are in the process of taking over an old coal processing plant. And they're going to use the infrastructure that that coal processing plant uh, used to make uh, electricity take over the infrastructure and, and build an SMR at that site as a demonstration. I think probably within the next four or five years, uh, uh, we're going to see a lot of those. In fact, I can foresee small modular reactors in neighborhoods. The idea is to get away from this big power grid and have little micro grids everywhere. So if one went down, it wouldn't be so bad and it can be fixed eventually, but it wouldn't take the whole grid down. So uh, yeah. I'm excited about this. To answer your final aspect of your question is, have we built them yet? No. But uh, in 1958, 
the, the submarine Nautilus was the very first small modular reactor. And it, it, it worked perfectly for many, many years. And um, most of our ships uh, and, and submarines are still running on small modular reactors. Mm -hmm. How long do they last before you have to, like, I guess you don't refuel them, eh? Well, that, that's really fascinating as far as I can, I can see is it, it uses a, a fairly high grade uranium in their fuel, but they don't have to refuel for five or six years, if not wow. more. Uh, and so that's why they can go down under and sit there uh, for you know, a couple of years and not worry about having to come up to, <laughs> like the old submarines have to, to uh, recharge their batteries. But the fact is, I think if there's a bright, a bright note in nuclear power, it's SMRs. Mm -hmm. Small nuclear, small modular reactors. Wow, that's great. Right. Right. Now, I've had a problem with the nuclear industry forever. Some years ago, uh, I edited an encyclopedia of, of nuclear power, which came out right at uh, the time of Fukushima. And uh, the TV stations found me very quickly because of that. And I uh, did a whole bunch of uh, TV shows explaining that the situation at Fukushima was likely uh, not going to kill anybody and probably not even much radiation uh, poisoning for which I got death threats for the next uh, three years. But in, in editing that book, I went to the Nuclear Energy Institute and uh, they were surprisingly of no help at all. They are really a public relations group with uh, very little expertise. But it's bothered me that they have uh, tied their future over the years to the fact that they don't emit uh, carbon dioxide so that they are they essentially buy into what Tom and I consider to be the human caused global warming uh, fraud. Where do you stand within that issue as regard to the nuclear in industry? Well, I can't speak for the nuclear industry, but I'm the only one standing uh, right at this moment, so, so I will. Uh, I, I think nuclear, uh, the, the nuclear industry's role is a strong one with respect to limiting and aiding and abetting our efforts toward climate change. Now, you and I may have differences in that, Jay, um, but the fact is, as soon as we can get rid of coal plants and then sneak up on, on natural gas, the better off we'll be in terms of air, uh, climate issues and all that. Well, I think in terms of air pollution, I will say I get quite involved in coal. The coal plants of today are not the coal plants of yesterday, and we can burn coal that's uh, quite clean. But we'll leave that alone. Let's go to Japan. I mentioned Fukushima. Uh, right after Fukushima, Japan shut down most of their reactors. And as I recall, they were getting almost half of their power. Uh, from nuclear power at the time of Fukushima. But I understand, and I've read some of your writings, that they're coming back. They're, let's say, came to their senses and are overcoming the negative reactions of uh, Fukushima. Could you tell us where Japan stands now and where they're likely to go in the coming years? Uh, yes. I, I must say that uh, the recent prime minister uh, just announced that they are, in fact, going to uh, light up their 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 plants that um, have now been safety checked and and certain uh, factors have been considered now about the plants that are built along the coast with respect to tsunamis and protecting the power 
the power supplies and what have you. But I, I got to say on the side, Jay, I was very proud of you when I was watching the news in those days to see you <laughs> pop up uh, and give the people at the bulletin of the so-called atomic scientists all sorts of hell about exaggerating and, and, and all that. So, uh, I, boy, you got a big start for your forehead in reverse. <laughs> well, uh, thank you for that, Michael. It was, uh, sure. it, it was fun doing it. And I have a friend that wrote a book on nuclear uh, some years ago, and he explained that you could uh, fly one of our biggest commercial jets into a nuclear power plant, properly constructed, which all of them are now, and all you do is shut off the power from the plants, but you wouldn't release radiation or cause any other damage unless you had some employees uh, in the way. So I'm glad to hear that Japan is coming back. Now, that brings me to France. Now, France has been the leader, gosh, uh, most of our lives producing 75% of their power. But I'm, uh, I'm reading things where uh, they're getting uh, shaky with uh, anti-nuke people uh, in France. What do you know about that? Well, yes, I, I've been following that pretty carefully. In fact, as you probably know, Jay, I've been following uh, nuclear power developments for, um, uh, well, quite closely since about 2004, when I was appointed uh, as the chairman of the Uranium Committee of the Energy Minerals Division of the AAPG, which is the American Association of Petroleum Geologists. I have been associated with that group, not because of the oil and gas issues, but my job was to let the people know, let the, the geologists know in the AAPG what their competition is uh, and is likely to be in the future. So I spoke out rather heavily uh, regarding nuclear power ever since then, as the, as the data allowed. But to answer your question, uh, France, it, it's not as you may seem, seem to think right now, because uh, the only reason... France is turning down some of their, their, their uh, nuclear power plants is, oddly enough, related to the increasing river temperatures that are um, in their, their cooling circuits are affecting their efficiencies, and they're starting to actually have an impact on the nuclear power production. So they're turning those down until they figure that out. They're not down on nuclear power. It's just that the practicalities of recent, this is the first time I've heard about the problems of the rivers heating up uh, with all the, the high temperatures in Europe. Uh, you know, that, that should be just not, not long, but uh, so they've had to turn, turn some of them down, uh, they're, but they're not against them. Uh, Can you tell us that, why, why would a river warm up near a nuclear station? Well, it's not. It's upstream. Uh, the whole area, having experienced major, major uh, heat, uh, what do they call them, uh, heat fronts, um, whatever they call it. Anyway, yeah, heat, waves. Uh, heat waves, yeah, uh, uh, has even uh, heated up the, the rivers. And even though the rivers are usually, as you know, Jay, uh, usually supplied by the groundwater in the area, and that comes out rather cool, it doesn't take long when you're, when you're exposed to surface water in the rivers, when it's, there's a heat wave on, apparently to take up the temperatures uh, to the degree that makes them difficult to use for nuclear power plant cooling. Mm. Now, do the plants themselves actually warm the water in a dangerous way? They have to warm the water because they have to cool the, the rods when they take them out and put them on the side and, and, and trying to get them to cool down to the point where then they can then put them in canisters if, if, if they nearby once they get to a certain lower temperature, but they still have to cool the, the rods when they pull them out. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, when nuclear power, all it does is heat water. Mm-hmm. Heat water, turn the turbine, and it makes electricity. And mm-hmm. when you're heating the water, and you, when, when, even though you can control that uh, with the, the fuel rods, when you have to change the rods, you're going to have to keep those rods, you know, let them cool down as best you can. It'd be nice to have ice cubes to put there all the time, <laughs> but, you know, no one do that. So they just have to use the water. That's why the water supply for uh, nuclear power plants is very, is very, very important. Mm-hmm. So it can't be too hot to start out. That's right. It turns out. I mean, uh, I would have never guessed that was a problem, but uh, I would have guessed the quantity might have been a, a problem, but but not the temperature. So. Yeah, well, to help diffuse anti-nuclear people, what about those who might say, oh, but you're warming the river with your reactors? Is it really very significant, the amount of Bottom line is, yes, uh, it's, a, it's a warming of the river. But usually, as I said, uh, the river water is, is often generally uh, cooler because it's actually groundwater that comes and that's a low temperature right off the bat. Uh, but as it comes down, it, it is being heated up. By, mm-hmm. by the, and that's why you'll find most uh, power plants around the coasts. And of course, being around the coast opens up, that, that eliminates the, the water temperature issue, but uh, it opens up another issue. And that means uh, like Fukushima-like, uh, and that's why you have to build these things uh, to withstand uh, such things as Fukushima experience. Right, for sure. Well, is the anti-nuclear movement in the U.S., declining do you think uh, when i was doing those tv shows after fukushima i didn't get the idea that it was but recently they seem to have lost power in my mind and i think partly because i am reading about small modular reactors and not seeing too much pushback how would you describe i guess i'll call it the anti-nuclear industry today well, uh, I would I would call them uh, steady. Um, uh, from from my early days of uh, you know 20, 30 years ago, first getting really interested in the subject, even to now, because it, it's sort of like once an anti nuclear, always an anti nuclear. But there are some actually very important differences. There's a couple of of top leaders uh, out of um, Environmental Defense Fund or or maybe that other one. Uh, Sierra Club, one of the founders or co-founders or something, he decided that after a while that nuclear power was pretty good. So he's going around the country and has been for years um, speaking on the pro-nuclear issues. So uh, oh, it yeah, can change. Michael Gellenberg. Yeah. yeah. These people, though, that get in their mind uh, about anti-nuclear, they don't want to hear uh, reality. And, and that brings up an interesting point. That whole anti-nuclear thing is based on one thing. And that is fear. Fear from the very beginning, fear starting in Japan when the bombs were dropped, and nobody can, uh, that group can get over it. Even two days ago, I, I watched uh, Rachel Maddow and, and uh, Lawrence O'Donnell, that something came up about the, the problem in, in Ukraine and, and whether that's going to blow up. And then they went into uh, uh, about a five-second tirade of, oh, my God, you know, the nuclear power, what are we going to do? So I wrote both of them a really detailed, nasty sort of, now, listen, you people, I respect <laughs> you, and but you got to get over this business. So anyway. Yeah. 
Well, you know, it's interesting, David Suzuki, an environmentalist in Canada, when he spoke about nuclear power in the past, he had nuclear bombs going off on the screen behind him. So, I mean, can you help diffuse that connection, the idea that somehow well, you're going to turn all these reactors into bombs? <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I can a little bit. And that is, it's simple. Nuclear power only uses fuel that is very, very low grade. And the fuel comes out of the ground at, 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 a, at a few percent. But it's really a matter of how much U-235 is in that fuel. You want about three to 5% of U-235 to go into the fuel pellets for nuclear power. In order to do a bomb, you need about 90, 90, 95% of U-235 to make a bomb. Now, that's why it takes a long time to spin through the centrifuges to upgrade these. And that's what's going on in Iran. Uh, and they have the hundreds and hundreds of centrifuges that takes forever to, to spin out the U-235 away from U-238, and it takes forever to do that. And so we've been watching, and that's why it takes a while to, uh, to turn off the, um, uh, uh, the, the 238 and to concentrate the 235. Mm -hmm. So the byproducts of nuclear reactors are not going to be used for weapons. No. No, I mean, uh, the, the, whole, the whole idea is because it's radioactive and woe is me, uh, oh, uh, radioactive. Wow. And same with the waste. Um, mm -hmm. uh, once you cool down the rods in the plant and they can be carted off next door and around the corner to the, to the canisters, uh, Jim Conca does an outstanding job on three YouTube presentations talking about how he leans up against it. It's not even warm. Mm. And, and and so the idea I used to have a concern about the, the storage on site when Fukus well when uh, the storage place went down uh, Yucca Mountain uh, yeah Yucca Mountain yeah. Uh, uh, got lost somehow um, but then I, st I started realizing looking around what's being done and then Jim Conca started uh, uh, doing a lot of studying too on it and uh, he found out that, that there was nothing to it it's just fine. Uh, people mm -hmm. can't bang into it. They can't blow it up. They can't do anything. Even if it were, it's not all that heavy duty uh, radioactivity in there. It, it's, mm -hmm. it's slowly, uh, you know, it, it's radioactive, but it's got enough of a design in those canisters to protect the problem. So that's a, mm -hmm. and yet people, I, I see people now more talking about waste issues than any other part of anti-nuclear thing. And yet mm -hmm. all the waste that we've ever produced here in this country, you can put on a football field 30 feet deep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you and know, I had have to come a lot. No, you're right. I had a professor, Jerry T. Rogers, who was a nuclear expert here at Carleton University in Ottawa. Mm -hmm. And he said that you could hold a used can-do reactor bundle in your hands after only four centuries. And, and <laughs> in yeah. fact, they were yeah. talking about storing it deep underground in the oh, yeah. geological yeah. formation. Yeah. That's I mean, another issue. Yeah. yeah, that's another issue the, of store of, of, of disposal. We don't need to dispose of that. I mean, all the money that goes into deep disposal, we don't need to dispose them. And that's that seems like one of the bridge, not the bridge things that we used to talk about, Jay. Uh, uh, oh, uh, surface water versus groundwater issues. Uh, the surface water being an engineering project. Well, the same with with uh, uh, disposal of nuclear waste. That's an engineering project that I don't think we really need to worry about. Really? So you don't think we need deep geologic storage? No, no. Well, that's good to hear. I, I, I totally agree. Uh, a little bit of an anecdote, but it relates to what we're talking about. Have either of you seen a Top Gun Maverick? 
Oh yeah, what a great film. <laughs> I think it's the, I think it's the best movie I've ever seen. I bought it for $20 and I'm watching portions of it over and over again because it moves very quickly and it's there's a lot of technical things I've got to watch over, but the whole premise of the movie is to blow up an Iranian facility that is making a bomb grade uh, nuclear material and it's uh, buried deep in the ground in the worst uh, geologic situation in terms of getting to it. And so training pilots to get to it is the theme of the movie. It's really quite true. So I was going to ask you, Michael, if you thought it was done from a reality standpoint. You got to go see it and we'll will, ask it another will, time. Yeah. My, but, my son uh, asked me last week if he wants to uh, go uh, see it. And I said, I don't have time, but I will now. Just a- <laughs> well, it, it really, let me tell you, it really is uh, worthwhile, but, uh, in an effort for transparency uh, with things that we've been talking about for the audience, Michael and I go back forever. <laughs> uh, Michael was kind of a student of mine, and together we wrote a book called Waterwell Technology, which I think was published in 1973, which I think kind of launched both of our careers. And uh, I will be forever grateful because Michael was uh, the driving force of the uh, of the project and it's uh, it, it's still around. And so we're two unusual scientists that are haven't lost a step. <laughs> we're still working at our at our trade and our professional is hard today uh, as we were when we began in the early uh, 70s. So that's really very, very exciting. Well, it, it was exciting too for me, Jay, because uh, the whole story there is Jay hired me as his research associate at Ohio State. Uh, I don't know why, I don't remember how that even happened, but uh, he and I built his, his groundwater modeling apparatus, and I ended up making this six-ton thing uh, that we were going to do a three-dimensional, if you remember that, uh, and that's the last thing I did before I headed off to Australia to get into the mining business, so. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, Michael, what are the committees in our government that are currently in charge of promoting or defeating nuclear power? Well, uh, the primary woman I, I remember thinking about, and I wrote it down somewhere here, but the uh, Committee on the Environment and Public Works seems to be the most active with, uh, I forget the uh, fellow's name that, that chaired it before the Democrats took over, but he, he did a good job of, of getting things moving. Uh, oh, again, uh, what's Inhofe? his name? James Inhofe? Uh, oh, no, no. Oh. Anyway, uh, he's from Wyoming, uh, this, this senator, and I don't remember his name. Anyway, um, so I think they're the ones that, that handle it, but most of it is the Department of Energy, of course, and they're doing a great job of supporting uh, both. And now I don't know how, how they, they talk about uh, renewables and nuclear power at the same without getting in cross purposes, but I have yet to see any, any of the releases by the, the, the renewable energy section of the DOE uh, talking trash about nuclear power. And they just don't talk about the, the, the crosstalk. So, mm-hmm. but, so that's, that's about all I can tell you that I know, Jay. Well, I've got some good news in that. Since you mentioned, you wonder how do they deal with wind and solar and, and then nuclear and other things. You know, it's, uh, we, we've gotten to the point in energy uh, people say all of the above. Well, uh, Tom and I will uh, tell you that we have uh, feel no support for wind and solar that are uh, simply undependable. 
but there was a bill passed uh, just a week or so ago, uh, one of the big money bills that uh, throws a huge amount of money in supporting wind and solar, but you've got to read the fine print to find out that for every acre and every dollar supporting wind and solar, they've got to lease public lands for uh, oil and gas uh, development. And it opened up 2,700 square miles in the Gulf of Mexico to uh, lease. So this, uh, we're not going to have any more oil and gas is clearly not going to happen. And people are getting more practical. And it was Senator from Man- uh, Mansion of West Virginia that really pulled it off. Uh, I would say snookered the wind and solar people by getting uh, oil and gas on an equal footing. So I think you're describing the committees and wondering, you know, how they can be at cross purposes with different forms of energy. I think we're settling into and all of the above, and we're probably wasting some of the money, but we're we're also doing some, uh, in, in my opinion, good work with some of the other money. Well, I, I agree, Jay. Uh, and I can add a little bit to that in that it's already started the movement away from, from wind and solar, because if you look at Germany, and if you look at Switzerland, and if you look at Finland, and a couple others uh, around the world, uh, they're starting to, they came on strong with wind and solar, and they're realizing wind and solar cannot handle it. They just cannot handle it, uh, both in terms of uh, the amount of energy and uh, the long-term economics of it. And I think that's going to slowly happen. And we'll look back once that, and, and say, okay, we played with, with wind free energy. Now, see, that's what caught everyone's attention, mostly on the left, because it was free, free energy, sun and wind. I mean, that, you can't beat that. But what they don't realize is there are details uh, in that, that, that that just doesn't make it. And the biggest problem is the operation and maintenance of these existing oil and uh, these existing wind and solar projects are just now coming in, and that's why it's starting to drive up the prices of these these wind and solar. And okay, it's easy to install them, but it's it's more costly to operate and maintain them. And that's mm-hmm. what's going to cook them, in my judgment. Yeah. On that note, we have to go to a commercial break. This has been Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris interviewing Texas-based geologist Michael D. Campbell of I2M Consulting, LLC. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. While many things we hear are lies, we know one thing is true. Viruses exist and people get sick. Look, there's no guaranteed way to keep from getting sick, but there is a way to reduce your chances. Cofix RX, the original povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray that you hear Dr. McCullough talking about, provides an additional invisible layer of protection from colds, flu, coronaviruses, and more. Click the banner ad on americaoutloud.com and use promo code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Stay protected with Cofix RX. For 40 years, alarmists have been warning of a climate catastrophe, yet none of their dire predictions have come true. Temperatures have not soared, sea level rise has not been unusual, and extreme weather events have not increased in either frequency or intensity. In short, there is no climate emergency. For 15 years, the International Climate Science Coalition has led the call for climate realism and a Made in America climate plan. 
a plan based on real science that responds to the real-world needs of Americans, supports economic growth, and strengthens our essential infrastructure. A plan that protects the environment and ensures that Americans can enjoy the blessings of clean air, clean land, and clean water for generations to come. It's time to put ideology and pseudoscience aside. It's time for a sensible climate plan. For more information or to donate, visit our website, icsc-climate.com. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. So we're back with Houston-based geologist Michael D. Campbell. Michael's the Senior Principal and Chief Geologist, Chief Hydrogeologist of I2M Consulting, LLC. So Michael, Joe Biden thinks that he can actually get rare earths from Canada instead of, of course, China and places like that. So is that realistic? Yes, I've been, well, yes, in terms of I've been following the rare earth issues for for some time also, uh, because they they tend to go along with uranium and, and many hard rock uranium uh, rare earths are associated just naturally in the mineralization and the, and the geological association. So I've been following that too. Canada is, is rather fortunate because in Eastern Canada and in other parts, Eastern Canada have a lot of good geology that's favorable for a rare earth. And I, I know there's three or four deposits that are, that are almost ready to go to mine uh, and to start producing. And of course, you know, Tom, that, that uh, having rare earth is one thing, but uh, you have to process it too, because we've got to get the dysprosium out and the other uh, high value uh, numbers of the uh, or types of rare earth. And that tends to be a problem. Uh, some of our people here in, in the U.S. are looking at that carefully, and some of them may be uh, coming on pretty strong. There's a deposit in Texas. And a, and a, and a Demures, a uh, Chemures, which is a spinoff of DuPont, one of my old companies I used to work for, is getting heavily into the, uh, the processing aspects of uh, rivers. So I think we're coming. And if people like Biden and anybody who's there that has a chance to, to uh, have their head screwed on properly uh, and, and can, can move things along that we should have. Now, we have, we have potential rare earths in this country as well, in the U.S., uh, especially associated with a project I've been working on since the 1970s until Three Mile Island happened, which brought that to a halt. Uh, I've recently just decided to uh, make an announcement about that. And I did a um, presentation at a conference, what, a year, year and a half ago uh, about uh, a deposit that we worked on in the 70s when I was still at Rice University. And I used uh, Rice graduate students. Jay, you may probably remember that. And that's where we had our, our NWWA research facility at Rice there for a while. 
and I uh, uh, took them to um, the Seward Peninsula, and uh, uh, we found uh, quite a lot of rare earth and uranium. And the interesting thing is there's a basin right next to it that we realized recently could well be a new district, a whole new uranium district, which opens up possibilities for um, not having a problem, which would uh, be not only the uranium in the basin, but also the rare earths and, and the hard rock areas that's associated right close to it. So, mm -hmm. Well, that's good news. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the so rare earth thing, go ahead, Tom. So, so Michael, how long would you say that we could run our current society if we got all of our electricity from nuclear? I mean, is it virtually indefinite or is there uh, you know, a time limit in your mind? Okay, um, uh, to run it means the, the fuel. We have mm -hmm. a lot of fuel. We have a lot of uranium deposits around the world. And if we really get into a pinch, we've even discovered, we, uh, um, the geological industry, let's call it, uh, have even come across the idea that we can get uranium out of seawater. No, oh, wow. Uh, if we really get a pinch, and since there's a lot of seawater, <laughs> that means there'll be a lot of uranium. Uh, even if it's a, a couple parts per million, it wouldn't take long to get a, a fair amount of uranium. But the uranium doesn't have to last us that long because I think we're, we're in a transition into fusion anyway, mm -hmm. into fusion power. Now, when that's when that's around, I, I, I have no idea. I, the closest I got oh. to fusion was oh, my... I, I, I want to have a little controversy for our audience, which I think okay. uh, they will, they will uh, enjoy. Uh, I've written a number of articles and I will continue to write a number of articles on the fact that we will never have a commercial fusion. Now, I have a little early insight to it. And you certainly will remember that when I was at Princeton, Michael, uh, I had a nodding acquaintance with Albert Einstein. Right. We didn't chat much, but we knew each other. And uh, this would be back in 1955. And Albert said that we were 50 years away uh, from nuclear fusion and 50 years later we were still 50 years away and uh, people on my side feel that we'll always be 50 years away but i've written a number of articles and there was one that came out just this week the the, the big energy uh, institute for the government out in california whose name you would remember who's the, what's the biggest one in northern california uh, anyway they just put 192 lasers on a tiny capsule of uranium and they got a millionth of a volt of, uh, of energy. And that's similar to the uh, amount of energy they've gotten in Zern, Switzerland, where they have a, a tokamak, a circular device that runs atoms around. And uh, when they collide, you get fusion energy. And they're also working in the millionths of the volts. But the interesting uh, thing about the experiment just uh, last week or so is they couldn't replicate it. I mean, they got a millionth of a volt once and they couldn't replicate it. So, you know, people are hopeful of fusion because supposedly it's totally safe, unlike fission. But you already described earlier in the show how safe nuclear energy is. People shouldn't be worried about fission. There is a radiation that it does not exist with fusion, but we've got it so under control. Uh, and, and I agree. Well, I'll answer Tom's question about how much uranium fuel do we have. I'm very aware of the fact that we can get uranium from the ocean. Obviously, it's more expensive. 
but I've been reading your stuff and everything I can get my hands on, on uh, uranium fuel. And it's questionable in my mind, we can ever run out with certainly many, many centuries, and I would say thousands of years. So the world will run on, uh, on nuclear energy one way or another, many centuries uh, hence. And I can only push back by saying the only reason I have an increased feeling that, that uh, uh, fusion w will come around sooner or later is because of all the money that's going into that. Now, there's huge. <laughs> it's not just a trickle here and there. It's huge amounts of money going into fusion research now with 10 or 15, maybe 20 companies that are, uh, you know, uh, not just on the stock market. So um, that's my only reason for. for uh, okay. Well, I am, I am well aware of every one of those dollars, but uh, I'll tell yeah. you something that you might not have figured out. All of the money with all of the companies spent on fusion is dwarfed by the amount of money that has been spent on wind and solar oh, the yeah. last 30 years, and yeah. it has not advanced at all. So yeah. Yeah. the fact that you pour a lot of money in, okay. you know, really means okay. it, it doesn't mean anything, but I, I can't argue. Tom, you're about to have something. I, I defer, Professor. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, okay. Michael. How effective have we been in stopping Iran and North Korea and even Russia in continuing to build nuclear weapons? Well, uh, that's a good example of conflating matters, conflating bombs and, and bullets with nuclear yeah. power. Very and that's one of, one of the things that uh, my opposition just love to do in writing their articles. They'll slip in something about a bomb or how it's going to be made just to scare the bejesus out of everybody. Then they go back to their normal diatribe misinformation about nuclear power. But to answer your question, I know nothing, very little about that, that subject. Okay. I'll, I'll jump in and, okay. and answer it yeah. because I follow North Korea, you know, very carefully and Russia more now than ever because of, of Ukraine. And uh, we have not been at all successful in stopping them, let's say, be uh, nuclear weapon prepared. But from a political standpoint, fear of a nuclear war, fear of a nuclear explosion really can be taken off the table. Uh, what you have are insane, power-hungry people, the little guy in North Korea, the, the people in uh, Iran, and of course, Putin in Russia. And the thing that they, the more you learn about them, the thing that they like more than power is their own lives. Uh, they, they all are smart enough, as crazy as they are, to know that one uh, nuclear bomb anywhere would be the end of their rule, the end of their, uh, their lives. And uh, it's, it's kind of, you remember, mad, what, is that, what was that, uh, mutual uh, nuclear deterrent. I, I can't remember what mad yeah, stood yeah, for. Mutually assured uh, destruction. Right. Well, and, and it really is to a certain, uh, it's effective mostly at the level of the insane people that uh, run these countries. So we've not been at all effective in stopping them from building bombs, although Israel has been very effective stopping yeah. Iran. Yeah. Uh, we may remember a few years ago, they took an entire plant off. Uh, it was yeah. a, a bunch of buildings one day, <laughs> the next yeah. day it was level as a farm field ready to be yeah. uh, uh, planted. So uh, I would say that 
Israel is the best deterrent for Iran and even to a certain extent. So it's something people shouldn't worry about, but we, we haven't stopped it. But this all buys into the fear thing, which you mentioned uh, earlier in the show. What can we do? Let's talk about part of our audience that totally agrees with everything we say. They understand the importance of nuclear power. They understand the exaggeration of uh, the problems that existed in the various uh, incidents from Chernobyl to Three Mile Island to Fukushima. What can an individual do to convince others that nuclear power is really the best long-range way to electrify our nation? Well, they can. First of all, they can. Uh, if they're really interested in convincing others, they they, they should be looking at, at at sources, good sources, reliable sources of information. Now, these days, it's kind of hard to, to to talk about that subject because there's so much garbage and 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 all that around in the internet. But uh, learn learn who knows what, and who has the best credentials, and where do they stand in in their profession before you start listening very carefully. But I think there's enough information around, uh, especially from, from our government, the DOE is putting out some very good stuff. And, and I, I don't see, I haven't yet to see anything that's been overblown or, or, or unduly uh, discussed that uh, was over the top. So I, I would start with, uh, with uh, the, the DOE information um, and, and then uh, look for uh, well, if you if you go to Google and just type in nuclear power, you could probably train yourself to go through and look for odd statements, um, conflating. In fact, that article that we did a couple of years ago uh, on um, anti-nuclear uh, 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 and the bias uh, uh, of the media might be a place to start uh, because it's it tends to be subtle. Uh, you can tell pretty quickly whether uh, someone is uh, is doing writing what they are about uh, the negatives of nuclear power when in fact they're being paid by wind and solar people. Find out where their funding comes from. Some of them are even coal. Some of them are oil and gas funded. Uh, so uh, you, you have to be a, a good sleuth to figure out what's really good information now these days. So mm-hmm. I, I would suggest start with that article and go from there, touching with, with uh, on with the uh, uh, DOE. Mm-hmm. You know, and one good way to get this information out to the public is twofold. One is when you hear radio talk shows criticizing nuclear, call in right away and say, hey, listen to the America Out Loud interview with Michael Campbell, <laughs> you know, and actually bring up some of these points. The other thing, of course, to do is to go with a group of friends. To, and it's good to have a group of friends because of strength in numbers. Uh, one of these big, you know, anti-nuclear debates or presentations or whatever. And when you have a chance, you go to the microphone and you say, you know, I think that nuclear actually is the safest form of electricity. And, and, you know, it's interesting because what I've found is if you do that kind of thing, the enviros in the audience will of course boo like crazy. But if you have a group of people who can clap for you and also then go to the mic and say, I agree with that guy, you know, so I think it's a matter of speaking out more. Yeah. Michael Schellenberger does a good job. Uh, and covering uh, a lot of uh, taking to task the uh, the anti-nuclear people. And he almost by himself uh, and a group of mothers in Southern California ha- have, have been able to take care of the uh, Diablo Canyon 
problem. That was scheduled to be taken offline, but due to their efforts, uh, the governor has, has postponed that indefinitely. Uh, wow. And of course, that brought up a lot of um, uh, lists of uh, fellow by name. I won't even mention his name. Uh, the, the, uh, that set off an article I just read this morning about how that was the worst thing that could be done, which is, you know, uh, we go through in line and, and, and talk about it. But I would say we need a spokesman like Michael uh, Schellenberger. And, and I, I, I got to say, uh, Jay Lair, I would just love to somehow convince Jay Lair uh, to, to become the, the mouth of, of nuclear power because Jay was in my days with him early, and, and I'm sure he still is, even when I saw you in Ohio when I was given that presidential address and Jay showed up at, at, at that presentation and joined me in the discussion, as I would imagine uh, at the time, and I fully expected it. But if somebody like Jay could get out there and start speaking as well as he speaks, that would go a long way toward, toward ensuring uh, a well, energy source. Um, Michael, actually, I, I do that uh, as often as I can, and I'll even do it for a couple minutes to our audience right now. I teach nuclear physics to fifth graders, and I have no problem. Uh, one of my comments is always, nuclear physics is not rocket science. It's really very simple, and Michael alluded to it in the beginning. It's just a matter of heating water you left out the fact that the water has to become steam and then the steam runs through a turbine and you get electricity. Uh, it really couldn't be any simpler, but you, you have a, a certain level of uranium that just naturally uh, degrades, goes to a, a different form. And one of the byproducts is heat. And uh, eventually that heat uh, can be turned into steam and the steam turns a, a turbine. It's, it's really not, very complex. I can tell you making electricity from a solar panel is way more complicated than nuclear is. And as we've already talked earlier, it's incredibly safe. One of the things, you know, Chernobyl, well, of course, dropping the atomic bomb to end World War II is where, as you mentioned earlier, Michael, is where the fear all started. But the Russians built this plant actually in uh, Ukraine, Chernobyl, uh, which no Western country would ever build. It had virtually non-safety systems. They did everything wrong besides the fact it was a result of an experiment by uh, operators that were not well-trained. Nothing could have been wronger. And yet most people are not aware in this worst case scenario, uh, the, the actual death toll was 49. Half of them were firemen that died uh, trying to put out the explosion and the other half from radiation shortly that were nearby. So, you know, we've been fighting a lot of information and uh, the more you're absolutely right. I, I love talking about uh, nuclear because uh, it is really so simple uh, to explain. And I love what you said, how easy it is to store a nuclear waste. Uh, it doesn't have to be put you know, a thousand feet at the base of a, of a mountain like they were trying to do at uh, Yucca. We, we can manage the waste in your, I love your analogy, 30 feet deep on a football field would be all the waste that we have uh, created. Another point is you mentioned uh, the nuclear submarine that has the small modular reactor that can stay underwater for long periods of time. We have launched 200 
nuclear ships and there hasn't been a single accident. There hasn't been a single sickness, not one fatality. The record of safety actually around the world. In this country, we've only lost four people in a research reactor uh, in Idaho in 1976, and it was a serious mistake. So it is really the, the safest form of energy, and I certainly wouldn't turn down any opportunity to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. That, Ida, that, that Idaho thing it was also, uh, you, you couldn't relate it to a mistake in, in the technology. Apparently, there was some subterfuge and a fight between two of those fellows about, over a wife that he oh. thinks somebody committed suicide <laughs> that pulled the plug Whoa. on that whole problem. So, Oh, my God. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whoa, that's yeah. scary. Yeah. Michael, yeah, tell us a little. Go ahead, Tom. Yeah, we only have about six minutes left. So, Michael, can you tell us what your future projects are, what you're focusing on coming up next? Well, right now, uh, a few weeks ago, I was engaged uh, for another uh, uh, case, uh, litigation, uh, a mining-related case uh, involving uh, uranium, and I'll be working uh, real hard on that. We're still getting people uh, calling in, wanting to talk about the, the Alaska Seward Peninsula project. Um, I would normally turn to my oldest son and if we can get something rolling up there to do some more uh, drilling and, and sampling and, and really opening that basin to see if there is, because you know, we have to drill it first before we, we can tell whether that basin is, actually contains uranium. I think it's like a 75% of a chance that it does, enough to spend a few hundred thousand dollars on it. But he's gotten himself busy with um, the UX group as a, um, uh, as a computer engineer now. Uh, and he's making a lot more money <laughs> than, than I, I could pay him. So I, I, I'm sort of losing him. So uh, that would be kind of hard. But I, I, I'm, I'm keeping busy and, and uh, doing the I2M web portal which is I, I review uh, uranium-related rare stuff and, and either put it into the database. We have now almost 12,000 records. It's searchable, totally searchable. Uh, and I point people toward that. Uh, if you want to know, you just type in a question or a few key words, and that will bring up the most current information available about things. Uh, and and uh, I, I didn't mention it before because it was... Uh, self-serving. <laughs> but the fact is, uh, it is a good source of, in, of information about nuclear power and about uranium. Mm -hmm. Now, actually, one thing our listeners probably like to hear in our last few minutes is the idea of how you actually mine uranium and what the ore actually is. Well, uh, uranium, uh, briefly, uh, uranium comes in, in two different types, actually. Uh, there's uranium deposits that occur in, in sedimentary rocks like sandstones. And then there's uranium that occur, occurs in hard rocks, such as uh, like granites and granodiorites and, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, on the former, we have learned to, we don't have to uh, uh, mine uh, by open pit or underground even with, in the, the sedimentary related in sandstone. We can do something called in situ mining, which you just drill holes and you include uh, water and CO2 and circulate it through, put it into, into solution and bring it out and put it into a processing plant to make yellow cake and off you go to um, the, the other en enrichment uh, circuits. But with igneous and metamorphic rocks, 
you have to do an open pit or underground. The mines in the Athabasca Basin in, in Canada are absolutely super world-class. In fact, some of that, well, all that has to be underground or open pit because it's all igneous and metamorphic related mostly. But the, 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 the ore grades, well, the ore grades of the sandstone is usually just a less than a percent. But the ore grades of the, the Canadian deposits are, can run as much as 20, 25% of total U308, which is the total in situ low, low, it may be high, high percentage, but doesn't mean, it, mean it's terribly radioactive. Yes, it's, it's higher radioactive, but it's still, you know, uh, not all that much. But in underground, they may have to go, it's so high in some of those mines, they may have to use remote mining because they wouldn't want to uh, expose too many people with that high a grade. So uh, we have never seen that grade in all my experience uh, before until maybe 10 years ago, uh, ever seeing that kind of grade. We we're also used to the lower grade, but you know that's what produces the, the uranium for the, what, 440 my, uh, uh, power plants or nuclear reactors there are in this world. And it's increasing quickly because China is putting one out a year in their own country, one a year. One a year, once they one get nuclear. their supply chain one. going, and and Russia was doing all right until now they've screwed themselves up, and and uh, I, I don't think they they're going to be around uh, doing nuclear power plants much anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's can... personal opinion, but uh, so anyway, uh, that's that's the answer to that. Yeah. Well, that's great. It's really <laughs> you know wonderful because so much negative news in the world today. I think it's depressing for people. So, I mean, this show has been a very positive overview and also a projection to the future, especially these small modular reactors. I mean, that sounds very, very exciting. I presume you could put them in the north then too. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. They can go anywhere. Uh, and in fact, you can, they are built as a small reactor that can move around with a truck or a train. And, and they, they, are, they are self-contained reactors and all they have to do is they, they're put in a big hole and they build a little teeny plant on, uh, on top of it. And that's why there'd be nobody could grab anything radioactive. And once mm-hmm. every seven or eight years, a big old truck would come along. They pull that whole, that whole assembly out, put it on a truck, replace it with a new one. Wow. All that's it's wonderful. doing is it's just creating heat. And the article that Tom and I wrote for American Out Loud that appeared today, which we took a 100% from your writings uh, has an illustration of a modular reactor on a truck pulling it somewhere. Yeah. Well, our guest today has been Houston-based geologist Michael D. Campbell. He's the senior principal and chief geologist, chief hydrogeologist of I2M Consulting, LLC. So this has been a great show. Thanks for having you on, Michael. Thank you. Glad to be here. Okay. Good to see you, Jay. Thank you, Michael. Okay, well, this is Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the story.